Radio. Theology of the Body 101. A talk by Father Daniel McCann at the Immaculata Mission School 2016, held at the Lee Scout Centre in Hobart, Tasmania. Well, thank you very much uh, for that little intro, Sarah. Yeah, so Simba may sound like a bit of a strange nickname, um, and I should and I should say not all the seminarians call me Simba, but a select few did. And the reason was, you ever, you've seen the opening scene in The Lion King, where they have that great opening song, and then all of a sudden, you know, baby Simba gets lifted up. Yeah, well, that was that was that was that was the image. So when JP two came out in 1986 uh, to Australia. Um, he was, he had, there was an audience at University of Sydney and um, I was there, my dad's a professor, well retired now, but he was a professor of physics at Sydney Uni and um, so he was there with the family and anyway, um, I actually finally got to see it years and years and years later, in fact just a couple of years ago, the footage of me being passed over the crowd, over the top of the cops, into the hands of JP2. And I was kicking and screaming. The last person in the world I wanted to get held by was JP2. Uh, nevertheless, that didn't stop him. He grabbed me, gave me a kiss on his forehead, and then threw me back over the crowd, and, and, I, and I went back. So that was great. Um, but I had a much more profound encounter with John Paul II uh, in the year 2000 when I was 15 and much more able to appreciate a papal encounter, um, mum and dad took our whole family to Rome on pilgrimage for the Jubilee year. And at the very end of our pilgrimage, like literally the final day, we got invited to a private audience with JP2. And, and so um, JP2 went and he met every single one of the members of my family. And then, um, and then when he came to me, um, you know, I was, I tell you what, I've never been so nervous. And, uh, and I went up and then I went and, you know, he held out his hand. So I went down on one knee, went to kiss the, the, the fisherman's ring. And as he did, so he slipped a set of rosary beads into my hand and then pulled me to my feet and then patted me on the cheek and then gave me um, a blessing. And I've never forgotten those moments. And um, uh, actually, the... I think especially getting to kiss the fisherman's ring was something really, really, um, uh, I don't know, really special because I ended up having an even more profound connection with that later on. Um, as many of you know, I did most of my priestly training in Rome, lived there for five years and only came back um, at the end of 2014. Uh, while I was over there, when I was a deacon, um, Pope Benedict resigned. As, uh, as, as Holy Father, and of course Pope Francis was elected. So I was in the square the night Pope Francis was elected. Um, then I got chosen to be um, the deacon for the Mass of Inauguration for Pope Francis. And so my job, or one of my jobs, was before the Mass to go down under the high altar of in St. Peter's Basilica to the tomb of St. Peter, and pray there with Pope Francis, and then pick up on a silver tray the fisherman's ring, the brand new ring of papal authority, carry it in front of Pope Francis, and then solemnly present it to him at the start of Mass in the, in the square. Now, honestly, the whole time I was holding the ring with the tray, well, for the first thing I was going, I was, I'm a yobbo from the suburbs of Sydney. What am I doing with the papal ring? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I, I'm going, but it was too big. Like, and it was honestly like the most Catholic thing I've ever done and I'll ever get to do. Like, here I'm at, at the heart of the church, we're inaugurating a pope and I've got the ring. Like, this is, I mean, I've never felt so united to Frodo Baggins in my life. I, I was coming, 
Uh, so, because I really did have the ring of power. It was, uh, it was um, anyway, but I, I, um, I didn't keep it for myself. Uh, and, and look, it was absolutely extraordinary. But to go back to John Paul II, who I think is um, honestly responsible for so many of the priestly vocations that we have, the young priestly vocations that we have today, but also, just as importantly, for all the good holy marriages that have happened as well um, over the last 20, 30 years. And, um, and so it's on this topic, the theology of the body, that I've been asked to talk about. Everything that John Paul II, the theology of the body is essentially taken from the first first basically year and a half of John Paul II's Wednesday audiences. Many of you know that every Wednesday the Pope makes a public appearance and he gives a little catechesis, he prays with whoever happens to be in the square, and then he gives a little teaching. And John Paul II launched his pontificate with these catechesis on what it means to be a bodily creature, what it means to be someone who is flesh and blood. What do our bodies mean? Because in a culture which really sees the body as something ultimately to be exploited and to be used in whatever way we want, what does it mean from God's point of view, the fact that we have a body? In short, what is the theology of the body? Now, many people want to reduce theology of the body to Catholic Church sexual teaching. It's not. It is so much richer and broader than that. The theology of the body, John Paul II begins by going back and looking at Adam. When God makes Adam in the garden, Adam is the pinnacle of all creation. When God, after God makes Adam, after God indeed when he makes Adam and Eve, God looks on the earth and doesn't say God saw that it was good. It says, God saw that it was very good. Man, men and women, are the only creatures that God has made for their own sake. Everything else in this world ultimately exists for us. But we exist solely for the glorification of God. And we do so by being flesh and blood creatures. So John Paul II goes back to the very beginning and he looks at the theology of the body now from the point of view of Adam. He says we have three what he calls original experiences. There are like three original experiences. They are called original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. These are the three what we call primordial experiences, the very, very uh, beginning experiences of man. So, original solitude, original solitude. You and I, we're born as individuals. We're born as, even if we're identical twins, we're still individuals. We're still individuals. And in our bodies, in our bodies, we encounter the world. In our bodies, we come to know. In our bodies, we come to understand. And in our bodies, we come to love. Our body is how we live. It is how we experience and it is simply how we are. It's how we are. Today, the world would say, I am not my body. The world says, I'm not my body. 
The world says I can do whatever I want with my body. I am whoever I feel I am. I am whoever I think I am. And if there is some kind of discordance or discrepancy between who I think I am and what my body tells me, then the thing that has to change is my body, not my way of thinking. That is the way the modern world thinks. But we are a unity of body and soul. So if anything that has to change, it's the thinking, not the body. The human body grounds us in the world and enables us to respond to the world in wonder. But through our encounter with the world, it also opens us up to an encounter with the divine. We know God through our bodies. The spiritual is also mediated through the body. What do you think is the most important thing that the fact we have to eat tells us? We want to hazard a guess. The fact that we have to eat. Why? I mean, God could have made us without needing to eat. But So what does eating tell us? It doesn't matter if you're a vegetarian or a meat-loving carnivore. Whatever, what do you think? We can't survive just on our own. We need other... Okay, very good. You're definitely on the right track. Absolutely on the right track. Our body needs to be filled... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, also very good. Our body needs to be filled, yep. Yeah, we, we can't grow unless we take in, unless we take in something to ourselves. Very good, okay. That's, they're all exactly on the right track. Basically, at the most very, very basic, the reason we need to eat, eat, what food tells us is that we belong to the world. We belong to the realm of the physical. And so long as we need to eat... We need to be here. That is what food tells us in, a, in the most incarnational way possible. We belong. We need to be, in fact, we need to be united with the very world that we live. Why? Because the food that we ingest becomes us. So this, I mean, it's a very, it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a very concrete way, but it's actually a God-given way of telling us we've been made with a body and that body is sacred and important to God. Through that body, we come to appreciate the divine. Who here appreciates a beautiful sunset? Who loves going to the mountains? Who loves seeing the ocean? All these wondrous encounters, these wondrous encounters, open us up to the divine. We appreciate God's beauty through what he's made, but we appreciate it through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouth, everything. So this is what happens. We realize through our body that there is a sacred. And because the body is the place where we encounter God, encounter the divine, our body is revealed to us as being a temple, as having a sacred character. And we, each of us, has our own unique body. So therefore, we are, to a certain degree, alone before God. Original solitude. We have been made for our own sake. And we are loved for our own sake. And we are loved as bodily creatures. Original solitude. But original solitude is given a new depth of meaning and is made even more powerful when we come to original unity. The greatest joy of Adam's life 
which he has before the fall, is the moment when Eve is presented to him. And he goes, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last I found someone who is like me, who is equal to me in dignity, but yet she's not exactly like me. She's not exactly like me. She's a little bit, indeed, quite a bit different. But it's this encounter with this other who is the same in dignity, who I instantly realize is someone who's been made by God for the same purpose that I am at, yet is different. And in that difference, I'm drawn towards that. Suddenly, the meaning of my own being, of my own body, suddenly becomes clear. Eve's presence awakens in Adam the realization that he is male. It may sound silly, but it's true. Adam had no idea he was a bloke until Eve came along. <laughs> in fact, in fact, us blokes, for us to know what it means to be a bloke, there has to be women. And for women to know what it means to be women, there has to be men. Our bodies as male, constituted as male and female, make no sense without the presence of the other sex. And it's in the presence of the other sex that we come to realize that we've been made to go out of ourselves, that we have been made for unity, that we have been made, in short, for love. It's very interesting. Our digestive system, does it need anybody else to operate? No, works entirely within ourselves. Our nervous system, does it need anybody else to operate? No. Our respiratory system, does it work on its own? It does. doesn't need any other person to operate it. But what about our reproductive system? doesn't function unless there's somebody else. It is the only part of our being, part of our body that cannot be fulfilled without the cooperation of another person. And another person who is constituted differently to how I am. Original unity. And the unity, this is it. When Adam encounters Eve, it is an interpersonal encounter. And when he rejoices and sees that Eve is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he has an encounter with God because he receives her and he experiences her as a gift. And it's in his encounter with Eve that he sees most of all that all of creation is a gift and it's all been given to him. Because up until this point, Adam's been going, well, this is all very good, God. This is very nice. You've made cows. You've made chickens. You've made all this kind of thing. And they're all very pretty. But you know, what's it all for? You got me to name them? Sure. Sure. Then Eve comes along. And as um, I think it's, um, is it Christopher West? He's the one who likes to say how the name woman came along. Yeah, but, or Jason Everett. It was Jason Everett when, uh, when, when, when Eve comes along and Adam goes, whoa, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's that, it's that, 
Is that it? <laughs> so, so basically, Adam needs Eve to realize that he's male and that there is a dynamism driving him and Eve towards one another. And that interpersonal encounter is the experience of the other person as a gift, as I said, so where they perceive all of reality as a gift and that all existence is preceded and comes from a love that transcends everything. When they've suddenly realized that I've been made to love and that my whole being drives me towards another person, then I perceive, wow, it's in realizing that I have the power to love, that I've been given the gift of being able to love, that I then realize that I have been made by love. That's what turns me back. I've been made by love for love. So, original nakedness is nothing less than beholding of the other in their created beauty and realizing that it is the simultaneous appreciation of original solitude and original unity in the body. That is what it is. So the unity now between Adam and Eve and indeed between man and woman is not closed on itself, but is a fruitful love like God's love. This is where, this is where, we, this is where we're different from the angels. And I tell you, the angels marvel at this. Human beings are the icon of the interior life of God. We mirror the Trinity in a way the angels can't. We reflect the Trinity in the way the angels can't. Why? Because we form a communion of persons which generates new life. And that is exactly what God does. God is an eternal communion of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. And through that communion of love, life is generated, of which we are the fruit. But we have been given the dignity of having a man and a woman united in marriage, giving forth children, and forming that communion of love. The angels marvel at that reality, which is why the family is so sacred, why the family is so important. Because the family is the greatest image of God's presence in the world. The mutual bestowal of motherhood and fatherhood, which happens in marriage, forms an even deeper part of the image of God that we have. And the new life that comes is experienced as irreplaceable and unrepeatable, a gift willed by God for its own sake. So the Holy Spirit is present in the mutual self-giving of husband and wife, so that in giving themselves to one another, the couple also enters the very communion of God. So the presence of God's love in human love transfigures, actually transfigures our bodies into the transparent fulfillment of what John Paul II calls original nakedness. So that is setting it all up. But we know, you and I know, that we live in a world marred by sin, in a world that's very fallen, where concupiscence, basically the tendency towards sin, is very, very strong. And so this image, this being able to perceive God in all this in 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 our relations and in interpersonal communion is now quite difficult. Is now quite difficult. With sin, everything gets turned exactly on its head. So we now struggle to see the world as a gift. People have to be told 
the world as a gift and it has to be shown to them. That happened to me too. I didn't appreciate the world as a gift until someone actually showed me. But to experience that, that, that natural experience of the world as a gift is much harder to perceive. Instead, we see the world as a possession to be snatched at, something to grab. Life is all about snatch and grab. You get one life, you grab, you take everything you can, as much as you can, as fast as you can, and then you get out. That is basically the dynamic that drives so much of society today. So we're no longer certain, and because now creation is something to be snatched at, because we don't receive it, because we don't perceive it as a gift, because we don't actually perceive its fundamental goodness, then we also struggle to see our own selves as the image of God. And because we can't see ourselves as the image of God, then we become isolated from our very bodies. They become isolated from our very bodies. What's the most important thing for most people nowadays? It's their desires, fulfilling their desires and avoiding suffering at all costs. That would be two very, very powerful. Fulfillment of desires and avoiding suffering. That would be because most people now don't have any kind of long-term supernatural view. And because they don't have that and because they're now unable to perceive the sacredness of their being, the way that they're, the way that they're constituted, um, the body then gets objectified. And so the body is now no longer a home, it's a prison. It's something that I have to perhaps overcome or more basically something I use. I use. The body is now my means of getting pleasure. I experience pleasure through the body, be that food, sex, alcohol, whatever. But the body is just a tool for getting pleasure and it is no longer a temple. So you've gone from temple to tool. This is, this, is, this, is, this, is the, um, this is the problem. So spousal love now becomes detached from God and is turned in on itself. And what's very interesting, after the fall, what do Adam and Eve do? What, what, what happens? Like after, after, after they sin, the dynamic of sin happens. What do Adam and Eve do apart from run away from God? What is the first act that they do? They clothe themselves. Now, why would they need to clothe themselves? Because they realize they're naked, but, but they sort of could see each other before. So when it says they realize that they're naked, it's not like because they hadn't seen each other before, but something's changed. Something profoundly has changed in the gaze, in the eyes. Because the dynamic of shame has now entered into and that isolation from the body is something that has taken hold of very, very quickly. So now there is an instant need to protect oneself. There is an instant need to protect oneself. And that instance of shame is something that's inbuilt. All children, all children have a natural sense of shame. As soon as they develop any kind of real self-awareness, start to develop a sense of shame. It's a very powerful dynamic. So they need to hide themselves from, Adam and Eve need to hide themselves from God and even hide their bodies from each other. 
And what happens instead of a dynamic of communion, we get a dynamic of domination, which overrides any kind of mutual help that's supposed to characterize the couple's relationship. It also separates the spouses from their children. And indeed, now Adam and Eve and indeed all of us pass on the stain of original sin, the stain of the fall in the very act of conceiving. But, but, okay, that's the bad news. But Christ comes as perfect God and perfect man. And he redeems and elevates every single aspect of human life and human love. And so Christ coming as perfect God and, and perfect man, John Paul II calls restoring a radiation of fatherhood, healing our capacity to love. Wojtyla, can't say I should say Wojtyla, John Paul II, says that this salvation process begins with Abraham. So he accepts his fatherhood as God-given by first accepting his own sonship of God. So what God does, first of all, is teach us is teach us that we are, first of all, his sons and daughters. When we appreciate that we are the sons and daughters of God, then we become much more able to become fathers and mothers, husbands and wives. Because what have we got to go back and appreciate? The fact that our existence is holy, that our existence is a gift, that our bodies are temples, that they are the means of the divine coming into the world. And how does Christ overturn the domination? How does Christ overturn pain and suffering? How does Christ overturn sin? How does Christ overturn the dynamic of snatch and grab and take whatever you want through the cross? Through suffering, through dying, and then rising. So redeeming it from the inside out. We are saved in the body. God doesn't just wave his magic divine wand and make everything better. He doesn't click those giant divine fingers, and start all over again. No, he enters the very dynamic of our sinfulness, all our taking, all our selfish desiring, all our will to dominate, all our will to power goes into the very, and takes it all on himself and even appears to get vanquished by it, even appears to get destroyed, wiped out by it, but then rises. So that now that we see, by turning all of that on its head, now that we see how we are meant to love. Okay. The effects of Christ's redemption. Actually, I'll go back one step. So as I say, Christ overturns the logic of domination through the cross. So the lover, we now realize the lover is the person who is prepared to suffer. Prepared to suffer indifference and rejection. But this is overcome by the deeper reality that in his passion, God loved me and gave himself up for me. We all need a love to fall back on. As we've heard in the testimonies of, of Thomas and Sarah before, the key to a strong marriage is to realize there is a love that comes before that marriage. The husband and the wife, their first love has to be God. It has to be Christ. And their relationship has to be the prime means of coming closer to Christ, of coming closer to God. Because then, 
once you realize that you've got that love to fall back on, once that love is the base love, that enables you to appreciate the fact that your spouse is very imperfect and that your spouse cannot meet all your hopes, dreams, and aspirations. Your spouse is not going to be one that's going to completely and utterly fill that massive hole you've got inside of you because they can't do it. They're not God. They're not perfect. Will their love be healing? Yes. Will their love make you a better person? Yes, it can. Will their love draw you closer to God? Yes, it can. But will their love be everything? No, it can't be. So what God wants to have happen, what God wants to have happen is for our human love to be united to his divine love. What does St. Paul describe marriage as? It is the image of Christ's love for the church. The image of Christ's love for the church. Now, I was talking about this with the guys last night in the session. There is that other great reading where um, St. Paul says, has this great light, and I love hearing it read at Mass. I love hearing it read at Mass. It's always fantastic to sit and watch. And that is, and this is, and this is, and this is this great reading. I think many of you will guess which one I'm going to talk about. It's like, women, be submissive to your husbands. Obey them. They are your Lord and Master. And I sit there and I watch at least 70% of the congregation steam, rise, <laughs> rise off. And they all start staring daggers and squirming. And then you see the wish. Yeah, I say, I tell you, this is why I don't come to church. You know, like, sitting there. And then, of course, then of course you've got to get up and preach to it. And hoo-hoo, it's funny. You know, you see, you've got, you've got, because, you know, usually about 70% of the congregation is female. So there's, no, it's just the reality. And, and so they're there and they are staring daggers at you. That's right. Go on, Father. Redeem that old misogynist Paul. <laughs> Come on, let's see you get out of this one. And it's great fun. It is great fun because they get so caught up in those first lines. There is no way. How can we in this enlightened, liberated, sort of, you know, new feminist era possibly tolerate this misogynistic that St. Paul, Paul pours out? No, because they completely miss what happens afterwards. In hearing that line, wives be submissive to your husbands because he's like Christ. Well, what does he say to the blokes? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that mean for the bloke? What does that mean for the bloke? Who gets off easy? (laughs) The women do. The women do. Christ, we have to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church. That means nothing short than a long, painful, bloody death on a cross, with hopefully a resurrection three days afterwards. <laughs> but this is the dynamic, in the sense that it is a love, it is a love that has an eternal horizon. Yes, it is played out, it is lived here on this earth. And yes, the spouses pledge fidelity to each other until death do them part. And even though, yes, the marriage, the marriage finishes when one of the spouses dies, Nevertheless, the whole aim and drive of the marriage must ultimately be heaven. Your spouse is meant to be your number one teammate on the way to heaven. You are meant to help each other get there. That's your job. That's your job. So, there are 
this is, I think what the, how are we going for time? Um, I'll have one more section here. And then what I'm going to, what I'm going to do in the second section is talk about perhaps some more hot topic issues related to theology of the body. And we'll try to talk about it. When I say hot topic, I'm talking like same-sex marriage, in vitro fertilization, contraception, all that kind of stuff. So we can talk about those issues, but we'll leave that for the, leave that for the next hour. But JP2 talks about four stages of love, which are all redeemed by, all redeemed by Christ. And they're the four stages of love that you find between the love between a man and a woman. The first stage, this is very, the first stage is the sensual or erotic stage, where firstly, it's the most basic instinct, where the man and woman see each other as objects for potential enjoyment. Okay. Now, the erotic drive, which has, of course, in some circles gotten a lot of very bad press, is actually something that's extremely good. One of the best descriptions of what eros, that ero- of, of, of the true place of erotic love, if you read Pope Benedict XVI's very first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, if you read that and you read his treatment of eros, it is one of the most beautiful descriptions of that drive which is God-given. Eros kind of goes back to that very point of original unity where it's the woe man experience of Adam, where he goes, my God, she is beautiful. That is the dharma. It's the realization that I, in perceiving the other, in their beauty and in their otherness, in their difference to me, I'm suddenly awakened to the, to the reality of my own life, the call of my own life, which is I am meant to go out of myself and love another. Without Eros, we would not move. Without Eros, there would be no great friendship between men and women. Without Eros, there would be no unity in the human race. It is a very, very powerful and a very, very important drive. If you like, it's the starter motor. It's what gets things going. It's that explosion initially. It's the push, but it can't stay there. It can't stay there because ultimately, if it remains purely at the level of the Eros, if we never get past the well man experience, then we actually ultimately never get past ourselves. It is so easy to get caught up purely, purely in the great pleasure that naturally comes from that initial experience. So if the love stays there, then erotic love doesn't end up doesn't end up fully driving me to in a complete encounter with the other person. The second stage of love. So okay, we move past the woe man stage and then we start to get to know the other person. We go on a few dates and everything. We tell you not only are they handsome or gorgeous or whatever, but they have a beautiful personality to go with it as well. So win win win. This is great. And we're getting so now 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 we're starting to move deeper. So now it's not just the erotic attraction, but I am really feeling a connection with this person. You know, we just click. We're interested in the same things. We've got the same sense of humor. You know, I like the way she dresses. She likes the way I dress. We like the same movies. This is this is really good. You know, so it's all it's all it's all sort of building up here. Now, this is good and it needs to get to this stage. It has to get, you have to love each other's personalities. Otherwise, you can't found anything. You can't hate 
your wife or your husband's personality. That's a big problem. So you have to love the personality. You have to, you have to, have to appreciate that. However, however, if it stays here, if it stays just at this level, then we still do not love the other completely in who they are in themselves, but rather the temptation can be to idealize the other person. It become an idealization. Now, one thing that came up um, uh, when in the guy's session was the fact there's not just physical lust, but there's also emotional lust. And this can be something that guys deal with. It perhaps can be even more strongly the, um, an issue that women deal with. But emotional lust is basically loving or being or basically fantasizing about an un real expectation of who the other person is. In other words, it's a slight form of idolatry. It's to put them up so much on a pedestal to see them as perfect. To see them as to see you know to 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 see them as complete but that we actually don't end up loving them. We end up loving our fantasy version of them. And this can happen if our love for the other person does not move beyond stage 2. Okay, so stage three. Stage three, the third level of love is the affirmation of the person in themselves. So this is a liberation of the individual from their own selfish desires and is a true and deep human love. It is a true and deep human love. This is the conscious decision to love the person with their faults and failings. This is the decision. This is one that recognizes I know this person is not perfect. I am completely aware of that. And nevertheless, I still love them. And I would still be willing to spend the rest of my life with them. This is a very deep, this is a very laudable, and this is indeed a holy love. And yet, it is still not the highest. Yet it is still not the highest love. The fourth level of love, which John Paul talks about, is the full <clears throat> affirmation of the other as coming directly from God. So that by loving the other person, we also end up passionately loving God. This is the highest level of love. And the virtue of purity, which is refined at each of these stages going up, is crowned, is crowned by the virtue of piety. So a communion of persons, a husband and a wife coming together, and in that communion of persons they are driven towards adoration, mutual adoration together of God, not mutual adoration. Adoration together of God. Almost made a big stuff up. <laughs> and adoration, adoration of God together, side by side, is the consummation of chastity. So this is, this is the fourth or the highest love. So, in light of Christ, becoming one of us, living, loving, suffering, dying, rising, we see the body is sacramental. He shows us again. Our bodies are sacramental, which means in their very being, they also bring about the presence of God. It is filial. We're children. We're children of God. We realize that we have our experience. We experience our being that we didn't make ourselves. We come from another. 
We come from we come from others. It's filial, and that ultimately points us back to God. It's nuptial. We're constituted as male and female, designed to love and give in a way that is completely total, in a way that is the way that is that is absolute. And through that self-giving, that love is procreative. It generates new life. And here we have our perhaps our deepest cooperation with God, and where we are the most beautiful image of the inner life of the Trinity that exists in all of creation. So I'll conclude by saying, therefore, that when we have a marriage between two baptised persons, what is passed on between the husband and wife is not simply a very deep human love, but what is passed on is actually charity. When God says the marriage of, of two of two of my sons and daughters, when that when that when that that marriage is formed, that they are the image of the love of Christ in the church, He's not actually just simply saying, "Well, we can draw some nice parallels between the two. You know, you hold them up together, you can see similarities, and it's kind of nice." No, He's actually saying this is a concrete reality. The love that binds Christ to the church, that same charity, that divine charity, is the same charity that passes between a husband and wife, a baptized husband and wife, when they marry. So that, with our own poor human hearts, when we go to love each other, our human hearts suddenly become the bearers of divine love. So that, if you will, God's prime way of loving the wife from now on is through the heart of her husband. And the prime way the husband experiences the love of God is through the heart of his wife. Which is a pretty awesome reality, but also a big responsibility. Because then the husband and wife then realize, if I am the doorway of God's love for the other person, then I better leave that door open and not closed. That I better be that image of God that I've been made to be. If God has chosen to love this person that is precious to them through me, then I better make sure that I'm close to God so that I can love my spouse better. That is the dynamic that we live in. That is the reality. So if you're preparing for marriage or if you feel that's your vocation and you think that sounds like a tall order and sounds very tough, don't be afraid. The first thing is don't be afraid. What God calls us to, he always gives us the grace for. Always gives us the grace for. And you can't love your love any more than God does. If you think you love your spouse or you and your spouse love each other, your love for each other has not got anything on God's love for you two firstly as individuals, but then also for you two as a couple. And if you think your bond is humanly strong, it's got nothing on the divine strength that courses through that human bond. God wants you to be very happy. As I said, we've been made for love, and that hasn't been changed, even with sin and selfishness and destruction. We've been made for love. Why? Because we've been made by love. It is awesome to be alive. It is awesome to be human. It is awesome to be made men and women. 
And it is awesome that we're bodily creatures. So, so that, in short, is Theology of the Body 101. Thank you. That was Father Daniel McCarr with Theology of the Body 101. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.